This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. So glad that you can be with us here at 88.7 FM. And for the next hour, we will be addressing questions. They are so stacked up from those of you who email. In this hour, we're not going to be taking any live callers. We're just going to try to catch up for the dozens of you that email us at uh, TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. And you can submit your questions that way. And I should add, during the week, if there's a burning issue, you can call this station at the typical number, the 843-EXCHANGE, 525-1859. And one of the prompts is where you can leave a live voice call question uh, for whatever for whatever it is that you're pondering. And we're happy to take them that way. Just make sure that your question doesn't last longer than 30 seconds. You might want to write it out so you've thought it through. And if you don't mind, we'll put your question on the air live. That's what that's for on another occasion. Well, with that said, Walter, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. All right, Pastor Carl. Our first question comes from Courtney out of Yuma, Arizona. She writes, what would your advice be for a Christian who is invited to participate in a Bible study by Priscilla Schreier or another similar teacher? It seems that her teaching stretches beyond scripture, and I'd like to decline the invite politely, but also share truth and love about teachers like these when opportunities arise. God has been sharpening my discernment over the past few years, but not long ago, it could have been me so easily deceived by the false teaching. Well, let me just say, as best I know, Priscilla is a born-again Christian, so I'm not denying that. But what she is doing is in clear violation of Scripture, and it's a bad model, and it creates bigger problems along the way. Uh, Many of you know her as um, Tony Evans' daughter, and a number of years ago, over a decade, about 15 years ago, she started a ministry where she traveled quite extensively and um, was involved in a number of teaching formats, I think initially primarily to women only, But as time grew, like so many women Bible teachers, so did the venues in which she was willing to communicate. But listen plainly to what the Apostle Paul said. He said, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. God could not have said it any more plainly than he did. And so when the Bible says that you're not to do something and you do it anyway, that's sin. And the Bible says that women are not to preach or to teach or exercise authority over men when people are gathered together, those people we call, of course, the body of Christ, the church. And so sadly, she has compromised that, and she has readily taught in a number of venues in a mixed audience. Now, I'm not saying she's not a nice woman. The little exposure I've had to her, she seems like a very cordial, friendly, warm, caring person. But it doesn't make it right. I mean, think of the consequences of this in what it means to someone's teaching. Suppose a pastor were living in adultery, or he was stealing, or he was a drunkard, 
Would you want to follow a pastor like that? I hope not. Well, if a woman is in clear violation of Scripture, then I don't think you'd want to follow that as well. And what typically happens when a woman begins to take the role that God has given to men in a mixed audience, it's just a short throw before other false teaching comes. And so almost without exception, any female Bible teacher that instructs men will usually embrace other doctrinal error. It might be the Word of Faith movement. It might be the new Apostolic Reformation movement, uh, the seeker-sensitive driven theology of our day. And so it should be a huge red flag to you when you see a woman doing this. And so, listen, I think that's where she's at today. Think your way through Priscilla and some of the things that she does. She teaches in mixed audiences. She's taught at Celebration Church that has a husband and wife pastor. She's taught at the Refuge Church that has a husband and wife pastor. She's taught at Joel Olstein's Lakewood Church that has a husband and wife pastor. So those churches are clearly in violation of Scripture. She's also taught with T.D. Jakes. He's a modalist. Modalism denies the historical teaching of the doctrine of the Trinity. And so T.D. Jakes teaches, well, the Father becomes the Son, the Son becomes the Father, uh, the Father becomes the Spirit, but he does not teach that there are three co-equal, co-eternal persons within the Trinity, and not to mention his prosperity theology gospel that he peddles alongside of his heresy on the doctrine of the Trinity. And yet she actually received a, an award from that church when she should have separated. Recently, a caller came, I called into the Bible line about a question there in a church that was acquiescing on moral issues like the LGBTQIA movement where leadership was strongly embracing this as an alternative lifestyle, and they wanted to know what they should do. Well, they're to separate. They are to remove themselves from that setting. Paul, in this same letter in 1 Timothy 6, says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a sick craving for controversial questions and disputes about words. So God warns about such people. And he also tells us in his second letter to the church at Thessalonians, let me turn back a page, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him. And so what she should have done was to have separated herself from someone like T.D. Jakes or Joel Olstein, those people are clearly in violation of Scripture. You can rationalize and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to teach with my dad on a cruise, as Priscilla does with Dr. Evans on occasion, in a mixed audience, and say, well, this is not the local church, this is a cruise. Listen, you can't reason that way if you're going to read the text carefully. He's just given instruction about how a woman should dress. That doesn't apply just in the local church, and it doesn't apply in cruises. It applies in all venues. He's giving instructions when the body of Christ is gathered. Neither can you rationalize, well, this pastor has invited me here, and I'm under his authority. No pastor has authority to give you authority that God expressly forbids. And so when Paul writes to the church at Rome, again, he wants to make it very clear. He, in that letter, has given really the great doctrines of the Christian faith. And when he comes to the end of the letter, he says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them. So she has failed to do that. And really what's happened in the process is the very nature of what a woman is to do in the church 
ends up being compromised. And sadly, with some of these um, uh, decisions she has made, she teaches what's called contemplative prayer, that you listen for God's voice. That's unbiblical. God's Word doesn't teach that you listen for His voice. That's not what the Scripture reveals about prayer. It teaches that we are to uh, pray as He specified, our Father who art in heaven. That is, there's a model as to what we are to do. So she's adopted a number of things that are just wrong, and you shouldn't be surprised because that was one of Paul's arguments as to why a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man. He not only took it back to the creative order, he also took it back to how the fall unfolded, that when Adam abdicated his responsibility and Eve stepped in, she opened herself up to deception. Many other passages we could look at, but no, you should bow out gracefully. That's not a study you want to be involved in, and not to mention what a woman should be doing in terms of building the church and older women teaching the next generation to be successful with their children. There's a whole lot more I could say such that I've had some personal involvement with this, but I'm not going to run there, but we'll leave it at that. Let's go to the next question, Walter. Great All right. question. All right, Pastor Carl, our next question comes from Kathy from Fort Lawn, South Carolina. She writes, what is a good expositional commentary to purchase? I would like to have hard copies. Please reference some good study tools to add as well. I am not seeking the internet version. Okay, fair enough. You know, I like a hard book as well. And and honestly, some of the best commentaries that have been written in the last hundred years, you can't get on the internet. Uh, but with that said, if you needed just a, a, a basic array of some tools, one, of course, would be a concordance. And depending on the translation of scripture you're using, that would be a starting place. Uh, the most popular concordances were done based on the King James, since that was the major translation that was used for you know 150 years in the United States, and it would be uh, the Strong's Concordance or Young's Concordance. If you're using the New American Standard, there is a concordance that's done in the NASB. So get a concordance, and, and again, most of the time the words are pretty much the same. Occasionally, if you've memorized the verse, say, in the NAS, and uh, you uh, have a concordance based on the King James, you might not find that same word just because the word that was used in the 17th century is now antiquated and not used in common English. But get a concordance. Um, Certainly have a Bible with cross-references. That would be a non-negotiable. We train people in our discovery class, our basic discipleship course, how to use a Bible with cross-references. And so, for instance, if I was in John chapter 3, And Jesus mentions, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son. I'd think, wow, there's some connection that Jesus makes between Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness and John 3.16. And if you had a Bible with cross-references, you could look, oh, I go over here and in the margin, it directs me to the book of Numbers, the 21st chapter. So get a Bible with cross-references. Two, when you see Old Testament quotations that are usually done in large type, uh, in most Bibles, occasionally they'll italicize them, but most of the time they're done in a block type. That tells you it's an Old Testament quotation. And for you to go back and to read that Old Testament quotation in its historical context can shed a lot of light as well. Uh, you might want to consider getting what I call the BKC, the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It was done in the 1980s. It was two volumes uh, produced by Dallas Theological Seminary. 
Uh, it would probably be about $200 right now, brand new. But if you go online, since it's been in print for over 40 years, you could find you know, both the Old and the New Testament probably for around $20 or shipping. I've found it many times for that price and trying to help people to get a overall volume commentary on the Bible. Why are those useful? Well, they can be useful if they address the harder issues. Some one-volume commentaries in the New Testament, maybe a one-volume commentary in the Old Testament. Sometimes there's one volume on both Testaments. Um, The problem with many of them is they look at the obvious issues, and they miss the harder things. Look, you can read the obvious. Uh, What may not be so obvious is, oh, he mentions here the Queen of the South, and you're not sure who she is or what her significance is. And and so that's where maybe a uh, a commentary like the BKC that doesn't address the obvious. But what is also helpful with that particular commentary is at the back of each book of the Bible that they do, there's a bibliography of conservative works. Now, it takes a little discernment. So you might want to ask your pastor, hey, do you know about any of these particular books? Some of them, if you purchase them, uh, you might find, oh, you know, half of it is in Greek or in Hebrew, and I can't read it and benefit from it. So they give a mixture of scholarly and um, those commentaries that are written on a popular level. Now, when you think about buying a commentary, maybe you would read, say, the 40 or so pages they've dedicated to the book of Romans, and then you decide, well, I want to study Romans in further detail, and you buy a single volume on Romans. Or you might buy 10 volumes just on the book of Romans that someone has done. And so, again, you can go to varying levels and varying depths. But the BKC is a good start. There was also a Bible teacher. His name was Warren Wearsby. He lived until his late 90s and died just a few years ago. For a long time, he just had two volumes. It was called the Bible Exposition Commentary on the New Testament. Uh, But after he retired, he kept writing, and now he has um, basically six volumes. He had some of the Old Testament books done in his BE series, as it was called. But he finally finished the whole work before he died, and that would be a great resource. Again, it's conservative. It's Bible-believing. He does appreciate the distinction between Israel and the church. So that might be a good six-volume series you could get. And again, you can find these used sometimes and save a significant amount of money. And sometimes I've bought used books that look brand new. Um, And then you might want to have a Bible atlas. So uh, again, a good Bible with cross-references, a concordance, uh, the Bible knowledge commentary, that's two volumes, the Bible exposition commentary, that's six volumes, a Bible atlas, That's going to take you a little bit further than your maps at the back of your Bible. So if you're studying, say, the book of Acts, you would want to know uh, in greater depth about the missionary journeys of Paul. And the maps in the back of virtually any Bible are going to be very scanty. And so a detailed Bible atlas will go a long way for you. And if you want to even study the at least um, New Testament words, you might purchase uh, what I call Vine's Expository Dictionary on New Testament Words. So Vines was a Greek scholar, and at least he gives the scant meaning meaning of a, ver- of a particular Greek word. The challenge with <clears throat> Greek is it can have different meanings in different contexts. And so if you looked up the word socks, flesh, you might think, oh, it just refers to the skin on the body. Well, it can refer to that, but most often it refers to the sin nature within, or sometimes it can... 
refer to a worldly point of view. Um, but at least he'll hit on some of the critical meanings, and, uh, and that can be a good, useful tool as well. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, Pastor Carl. Our next question comes from Brooke out of Beaufort, South Carolina. She writes, Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 26, and chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, the Bible explains the deeds of the flesh and how those who practice them will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then it says in 524 that those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. Since many or I would say all Christians struggle with the deeds of the flesh, will you help me understand what these verses mean? How do we as sinful Christians who do the deeds of the flesh line up with the last part of chapter 5 and verse 21, where it says those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God? And again in chapter 5 and verse 24, it says... We have, cruci- we have crucified the flesh, but I know we as fallen sinful people are unable to do that in our earthly bodies. If I read this passage in black and white, it seems as though there is no room for failure. But I've read the whole Bible, and I know that all men and women failed or sinned and were forgiven of those sins. Please help me to understand what Paul was trying to say to the Galatians, and I'm assuming this is to all of us. Thank you. Now, this is a fantastic question, Brooke, and So you're wrestling with uh, comparatively studying these verses, and obviously you've come to some right conclusions. James says we all stumble in many ways, but he is giving an exhortation to the Galatians to depend upon the Holy Spirit to live a godly life. They had started correctly in that they understood that they were justified by grace alone through faith alone, but some false teachers had come into the church. They were called Judaizers. And the conclusion that they made was that, well, you're saved by grace, but you live partly by human effort. And that's not the case. We are saved by grace and we're sanctified by grace. Apart from Jesus, he said in John 15, we can do absolutely nothing. So he begins here to go to your question in verse 16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Here, of course, the word flesh is not a reference to your skin over your skeleton, but to the sin nature. In fact, some English translations will render it the sin nature. For the the flesh or the sin nature sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. And so there's a war. There's a war within that the believer experiences that the unbeliever does not know. Uh, Because we are born again, we have a heightened conscience that the Spirit of God has regenerated. It's not that an unbeliever doesn't have a conscience, but his conscience can become seared as with a branding iron. It can become calloused. And the worst state is when a man's conscience becomes an evil conscience, where he calls good evil and evil good. And some people have developed that kind of a conscience. With that said, the believer is in tune. He is uncomfortable in sin. He's not satisfied with uh, living a compromised lifestyle. And so he says, well, here's what the flesh produces. Now the deeds or the works of the flesh are evident, which are, and he gives this list, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, envy and drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, in case I missed something, of which I have forewarned you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things, you could paraphrase it, those who live like this, 
have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And so Paul wants to make it clear, there's a war within between the Spirit, who now indwells the believer, we've become a temple of the Holy Spirit, and the flesh, the shed, the sin nature is not shed until Jesus comes again. When we see him, we'll be like him, and our uh, sanctification process will be finished, we'll be glorified, we'll never be able to sin again. With that said, right now there's a war within, but if the war is persistent, and only is in the direction of serving the flesh. Such people have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. They really are not born again. And so he goes on and he says, this is what the Spirit produces. He gives these nine qualities. And then he adds, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its lust. In other words, when you come to Christ, you make a decision of the will. You make a decision to uh, crucify the flesh, to say no to self, to make Christ the king of your heart. That doesn't mean that you can't sin again because he's just said, unless you walk by the Spirit, you're going to blow it. If you spend your whole life blowing it, living a godless life, then it means that you really probably have never been regenerated. And some people's conversion is known only to God. Paul will say to the Corinthians, test yourself to see if you be of the faith. Peter will write, um, make sure your election and calling is certain. Uh, in First John, again, he gives this tension. And again, it's a tension, I think, between uh, direction and perfection. No one will be perfect in this life. Our goal is holiness. But no one will reach absolute perfection until we receive a glorified body. We've been justified, declared righteous. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved right now in the present as we're being sanctified, as we're being set apart, as God begins to produce in our lifestyle what he's declared us to be in our position. And so we're being conformed to the image of Christ, and that war within unfolds. And again, this is why we need to walk by the Spirit. In Romans 7, Paul says, the good that I wish I cannot do, I do the very evil that I do not wish to do. And then he comes to the eighth chapter and he said the solution, again, is to walk by the Spirit, to depend upon the Holy Spirit to help us to live a godly life. So we're saved by grace and we continually, habitually need God's grace. Paul will say to the Colossians, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive him? Well, you came to a point where you acknowledged that you could do zero to earn salvation. And if a person doesn't understand that, it's not yet conversion. They admit there's total, absolute bankruptcy, and they put their full weight on the death, burial, and resurrection. That's how you walk in him. You depend upon him moment by moment. So in 1 John 1, 9, he's writing to save people. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us. Why? Because Christians sin. And so he say, my little children, in chapter 2, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, because Christians do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And then he'll go on in the third chapter. Remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. He, he makes it very clear. Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices, there's the key word, practices. We just read that in Galatians 5. Righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Again, it doesn't mean that we don't sin. He just said right after 1 John 1, 9, if we say we have not sinned, we call God a liar, and his word is not in us. And so we do sin. But it's not an issue of perfection. It is an issue of direction. 
And if the direction of a person's life is not to please the Lord, he has good reason potentially to question or not whether they've been born again. So I hope you understand that tension. I would suggest you, Brooke, to go to my website, searchthescriptures.org, and download the message, Have You Ever Made the Wonderful Discovery of the Spirit-Filled Life? I think that will help you immensely to understand this in a little more depth. Let's go to the next question. All right, Pastor Carl. Our next question comes from John out of Manchester, New Hampshire. He writes, "Where I'm sorry, where did Abel go when he was murdered by his brother? Since Abraham's bosom was not mentioned or established yet, thank you, brother. Well, I, I think you assume that Abraham's bosom, because it was not mentioned, that it had not been established. It was indeed already in existence. And so... Abraham, of course, was the father of the faithful. He is an example of a man that had genuine, true faith in the Lord. Jesus could say, Abraham uh, saw my day and he believed. Abraham believed in the coming Messiah. He had a dress rehearsal up there in Genesis 22 when he's on top of Mount Moriah, and Isaac becomes a type, a picture of what the Lord Jesus is going to do. But remember, um, there are many terms that are used to describe the place of judgment and the place of Old Testament saints. In the Old Testament, when you died, you went to Sheol. Or if you were not reading from the Hebrew Bible, and many Jews didn't, they read the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation, you went to Hades. Now, Hades sounds pretty negative, but actually there were two compartments to Sheol or Hades. There was righteous Hades, and there was unrighteous Hades. Righteous Hades is also called paradise, paradosis, and it's called Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom is a metaphor for righteous Hades. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he emptied out that host of Old Testament believers and carried them to heaven. That was not possible until in time and space he accomplished the payment that was necessary to secure our salvation. They were looking forward in faith for that to be done. Of course, at this time, we look back at what Christ has already accomplished. And so in that sense, righteous Hades, righteous Sheol, no longer existed. And so today, to be absent from the body, you are present with the Lord. We're in heaven, one of the names given to describe where believers go. It's called the Father's house. Um, It's called the third heaven. It's called paradise. So paradise continues uh, under uh, with the same name but in a new place. It can be called the kingdom of God. That term can re- be used in different ways, sometimes to God's rule over the nations of the world, sometimes to the fact that the kingdom of God is in you, a person who's been born again, sometimes a literal physical kingdom where Messiah will rule for a thousand years, or sometimes it can be used to refer to heaven itself, the new Jerusalem, the holy city. So, um, So you're mistaken to think that it didn't exist. Abraham's bosom, paradise, righteous Sheol, righteous Hades existed. Now, today, when a lost man dies, he goes to unrighteous Hades. That is, in essence, current-day hell. But Revelation 20, 11 to 15, teaches that death and Hades will find their resting place in the end in the lake of fire. This man from, what, New Hampshire? Yes, sir. Yeah. John, you should listen to my series called God's Prophetic Schedule. I think this will put a lot of things together in your mind to understand the prophetic schedule, uh, beginning with the next great event, the rapture. And I cover some of these details that I've just touched on in your question in great detail. 
All right, let's go to the next question. How much time do we have still? We are at about 29 minutes and 10 seconds. All right, good. Let's keep going. Uh, So our next question comes from William out of Walterboro, South Carolina. He writes, where during the tribulation period does the rapture take place, pre, mid, or post? We love you, Pastor, for all of your efforts in the study of God's Word to help his sheep understand the truth. We listen to your radio station every day and pray for all of you at your ministry. Well, William, that means a lot to me that you would pray for us here at WAGP at Community Bible Church. And uh, these are important questions that you are asking. It's important that in your mind that you distinguish between the rapture of the church and the second coming. When Christ comes in the rapture, we meet the Lord in the air. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4 teaches. Uh, We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep or dead so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. You don't have to grieve like an unbeliever. It doesn't mean you won't grieve, but you grieve in a different way. How so? How is it that we don't have to grieve like an unbeliever? Because if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that's the confession of every true Christian, that's the gospel, the power of God for salvation, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Why is that? Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so while your body is laid in a grave somewhere, the person inside that body immediately goes into the presence of the Lord. So he'll bring with him believers who have gone on to heaven with him back. For he goes on to say, this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who remain uh, and are alive at Christ's coming at the catching up will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ. Uh, will rise first, and those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up. Those two words, caught up, is one word in Greek, harpazo. And in the Latin Bible, it is the word rapto, raptore, from which we get our English word rapture. People say, well, the word rapture is not found in the Bible. It's not found in the English Bible, but it's found in the Latin Bible, which is the only Bible the church virtually used for a thousand years. And certainly, you can call it whatever you want. Everyone believes in the catching up. But in the catching up, we meet the Lord in the air. Whereas at the second coming, Jesus comes to the earth. Revelation, I mean, excuse me, um, Zechariah chapter 14. He touches his feet on the earth. He splits them out of olives in two. At the rapture, he comes for his people. Uh, At the second coming, the angels come for the lost to remove them from the earth because they'll be excluded from the coming kingdom. At the rapture, his people are removed from earth into heaven, whereas at the second coming, the lost, again, are removed from earth into Hades, which we just mentioned in the last question, because Hades will still serve as the current day hell until the end of the millennial reign. Uh, Jesus comes before the time of the great tribulation and the rapture. To answer your question, we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Why? Because that's what the Bible teaches. Now, there are some people who are mid-tribulationalists, and you ask about pre, mid, or post. Uh, The mid-tribulationist thinks that somehow the first half of the tribulation is not the wrath of God, and that at some point the wrath of God is poured out, and that's when the church is removed. Not at all. The Scripture is clear that the whole seven-year period is known as the time of tribulation, Though it is true in the second half of the tribulation, it gets much worse. In Revelation 6, 17, where he describes the seal judgments that take place in the first three and a half years, he calls that time frame the great day of their wrath. And then in Revelation, uh, and he also calls it the wrath of the Lamb. 
And so, again, the first half is described in terms of wrath. And yet Jesus will say right in the middle of the tribulation, he's basically echoing what Daniel the prophet wrote, that in the middle of the seven-year period, the Antichrist will go into a reconstructed temple and he will commit the abomination of desolation. And when that event takes place, it goes from a time of tribulation to great tribulation. Now, if you don't think the first half is bad, just look at the four horsemen of the apocalypse and then the other two sealed judgments that follow. I mean, it's chilling. You'd think, wow. But when the abomination of desolation takes place, the Bible says there's silence in heaven for 30 minutes. It's like people's breath is taken away. Unlike the seal judgments where you can only see one seal at a time, when the seventh seal is broken, in the seventh seal is contained seven trumpets, and in the seventh trumpets are contained the seven bowls of wrath. And so when the seventh seal is opened up, you can see all the judgments that come, and the intensity of them are so much greater that it's like nobody can speak. There's just silence. And so God, the Scripture says, has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. That's what the New Testament teaches. And this is the wrath of the Lamb. The church is not destined for wrath. God is not going to allow the bride to go through the great tribulation and then come back at the second coming. You know, I'm going to let you get beat up black and blue, and then we'll have the marriage of the Lamb in heaven. It's not like that at all. And remember, this seven-year period is called the time of Jacob's trouble in the Old Testament. And the focus is not with the church. The focus is with Israel converting Israel. God will actually not only convert Israel, he will use a great number of Jewish men to bring the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation, and the Great Commission will be fulfilled in a way that we've never seen in 2,000 years of church history. Jesus can say this gospel of the kingdom will go out to the whole world, and then the end will come. And so it's going to be amazing what takes place. But here's the deal. To come to a pre-tribulational position, and I'm just touching on it, and I would recommend Uh, this brother, William, who's uh, writing this question, that you listen to the series called God's Prophetic Schedule because you need to study this in depth. But basically what it comes down to is, one, the church is not Israel. The church is distinct from Israel. And the Bible teaches that. There are people who basically, they're in Reformed theology today, and they came to some conclusions based on experience. Initially, they said, well, the Jewish people rejected their Messiah, so God must be done with them. No, not according to Genesis 15, because God made an unconditional covenant with the people of Israel. He's not done. And in Jeremiah 31, he said, as long as the sun and the moon and the stars are hanging in the sky, that's how long I'll be committed to the people of Israel. He's not done with them. And they further did their theology based on experience when it appeared for 1,800 years, the Jews had zero response to Jesus, very little, just an occasional conversion here and there. And so you don't do a theology by experience. The greatest harvest of Jewish people is going to take place during the time of Jacob's trouble. And so, again, a simple reading of Scripture. And one of the things that was recaptured in the 1600s was to go back to a plain reading because so many were interpreting prophecy allegorically, and they applied a different principle of interpretation to the prophetic section of scriptures than they did to the rest of the New Testament. Listen, how did God fulfill the prophecies concerning the first coming? Literally. And that's how he will fulfill the prophecies concerning the second coming. And there are so many things that you have to spiritualize. Let me just give you one example. 
only a pre-tribulational rapture can have at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ a rebellious multitude that come against God's Messiah who's been ruling in Jerusalem. How is that? Well, if we are brought up at the end of the seven-year period and we're raptured or caught up at the end of the tribulation and then we make a U-turn to come back to the earth, then everyone's in a glorified body. They will not be able to sin. And so now you have to spiritualize the rebellion, the binding of Satan for a thousand years and all of that. But if the church is caught up prior to the tribulation and the people who are left behind are unbelievers, but those who survived the tribulation and come to faith who haven't had their heads cut off, they will, according to the Bible, enter the millennial reign of Messiah in their natural bodies. Life expectancy will be extended for a thousand years, much like before the days of the Great Flood. People will have children, grandchildren, great-great-great-great-grandchildren, and their children will have to make a response to Jesus, and not all will. And that's the only explanation for a rebellion at the end of the thousand years. Now, the amillennialist, the person who says there's no millennium, um, basically spiritualizes it all away, and they apply a different principle of interpretation. So it's an in-depth question, but again, the second coming is different from the rapture. There are two distinct events. He meets, he comes for the church in the air. Um, we meet the Lord in the air. At the second coming, he comes to the earth to rule and reign. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Our next question comes in as anonymous. They would like to know, what is wrong with the modern evangelical church? Well, largely in a simple 60-second answer, it's undertaught. Pastors are no longer opening the scripture. So we've just seen in the last month two mega churches, two of the top 10 largest churches in the United States. One did their Sunday morning services based on Toy Story. The other did it based on the movie Barbie. That's absolute folly and nonsense. Preach the word, teach sound doctrine. That's what is lost in our day. And so, you know, one of the first questions concerned Priscilla Schreier. No one would ask such a question, you know, 20 years ago when the Bible was still being taught because they knew plainly what believers for 1,900 years of church history taught. But now because we've gotten away from the Scripture, we're seeing things that no one else has seen in 2,000 years of church history. And so the church is under-taught. And when the church is undertaught, it opens itself up to all kinds of false doctrines. And so there are many who are under the label of evangelical, which used to be a safe term for a Bible-believing Christian, which are no longer evangelical Christians. They're not really Bible-believing Christians. And so that is largely what's wrong. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right. Our next question comes from Grant out of Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. He writes, you have argued that Leviticus chapter 19 in verse 28, on prohibition on tattoos is part of God's moral law, not his ceremonial law. And hence, this prohibition still applies to Christians today. Do you believe that Leviticus 19, chapter 19, and verse 27 is also part of the moral law, and hence, it is a sin for Christian men to trim their beards or sideburns? If not, why not? Well, it's a fair, fair question. It sounds almost like a got you question, Pastor, but, but I, I don't know what your motive is. I don't want to judge you. But he says, just to back it up a little bit to verse 23, when you enter the land and plant all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you, it shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. Now, obviously, that is contextually um, bound to the promised land. 
but not everything in Leviticus is contextually bound. And so you have to ask what part is the moral law and what part is the ceremonial law. When he says, for instance, um, if there is a man who lies with a, let me hear it, if there is a man who lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death. You shall also kill the animal. Wow. If there is a woman who approaches any animal to mate with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Now, I hope you don't think for one moment that that is uh, based and bound only to the Jewish people. You say, is it still a sin for a person to be intimate with an animal? Of course it is. Well, it's not mentioned in the New Testament. It doesn't have to be. There's a lot of things in the moral law of God that aren't mentioned in the New Testament. It's still a sin for you to marry your sister. And so God's word is clear. And so you need to read through this very, very carefully. He said, you shall not eat anything with blood nor practice divination or soothsaying. And so there... In verse 26, he says, you don't eat anything with blood. You say, well, that just applies to the Old Testament. Not according to the book of Genesis. Ever before Moses gave the law, in Genesis uh, chapter 9, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you. I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat the flesh with its life. That is the blood. God is making clear that blood is not food. And when you come into the New Testament in Acts 15, at the Jerusalem conference, he also makes it clear that Gentiles, there's four moral issues. And one of the things that they were not to do was to eat blood or strangulated food. Why? Because that was a pagan practice. And I know maybe it's not a big deal in the United States, but there are countries like the Philippines where people literally drink blood. They eat blood as food. And there are still, still some expressions in the United States like what we would call blood sausage. And God forbade that. Now, is he talking about not eating a rare steak? Look, you could take any piece of meat and you could boil it until it's well done, but there'll still be blood particles in the meat. He's talking about the eating and drinking of blood. Why? Because God highlighted the sacredness of the blood, that the life is in the blood, and he'll go on to teach that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So that's not time-bound, because the New Testament gives us an addition commentary. You shall not round off the side growth of your head, nor harm the edges of your beard. Now, you're asking me, well, does that mean we shouldn't, you know, trim the sides of our head and this is uh, time-bound? Well, I think there's a misapplication of this amongst Jewish Orthodox men in terms of their beards and the locks that they grow down the sides of their head. That's really not what was in view. And that was certainly not something that was practiced until really long after Jesus had left this earth. And so what was in view? Well, what was in view were basically those who worshipped idols, because what they would do is they would trim their head in such a way as to say, basically, I am here to worship the planets above. And that was prohibitive, and that was still not to be done. They, they worshiped the hosts of heaven, and in honor of these, these idols, they cut their hair so that their heads would resemble, say, a globe. And they were ascribing uh, to what the Canaanites were doing in the land that they were going into. Uh, they were ascribing evil practices, idol worship. And then he said, you shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks. I am the Lord. Well, you can say that's time bound. And and let me just say that, look, millions of people, born again Christians, 
have tattoos. I, I baptize people, unless we have the Lord's table, almost every week, new believers. And sometimes I'll refrain from it because we have a guest speaker and I want to be down on the floor with him. But, um, but listen, I see a lot of ink, a lot of ink up in the baptismal. I don't condemn those persons. That's just their past lifestyle. But if you ask me, hey, should I get a tattoo? I would say it's certainly not wise. And I would point you to this verse among others, but I think there are certainly uh, other principles you could argue. Certainly there are tattoos that are very evil-looking, naked women's skulls and so forth. And somebody says, well, what about the tattoo of a cross? Well, I would take you to 1 Corinthians 10, 23. Is it beneficial? All things are lawful. Not everything is beneficial. And so it's important that if it's not beneficial, you should abstain from it. And so a tattoo will help you in the preaching of the gospel. In a lot of circles, absolutely not. It will actually be a hindrance. If you don't have one, it's not a hindrance. If you have one in some circles, it will hinder you. That is granted changing. We used to say everyone who has a tattoo is not in prison, but everyone who's in prison has a tattoo. There was a certain deviant behavior that went with tattoos, but now it's become very commonplace by Satan's design. I think he's actually conditioning the world for tattoos. I was in a foreign country, and I couldn't believe how much ink there was, just like everywhere you went. And I think the evil one in Western Europe and South America and other places is conditioning the world for the ultimate tattoo that's coming, 666. And so, again, I would just get you to think through this. It would be very easy for you to say, oh, you know, uh, you say tattoos are wrong, Pastor, and and yet, um, you know, you, you don't make statements about haircuts. Well, no, you're, you're wrong. You've made some false conclusions, uh, like some Orthodox Jewish men have, about what he means when don't make any um, cuts in your body or don't round off the sides of your heads or drinking blood or divination or soothsaying. So granted, there are some things that are time-bound, and this is where wisdom and a careful study of Scripture, you don't want to be guilty of encouraging people to break what God said. Jesus said it as plainly as he could in the Sermon on the Mount. Whoever teaches someone to break the least of these my commandments will be least in the kingdom of heaven. And I would just say to anyone who has a tattoo, just use it as a reminder of what God has saved you from. Use it as a reminder that you're a new man in Christ Jesus. But don't use it as an excuse to encourage others to do maybe what you should not have done. All right, good question. All right, we've got about six minutes left, Pastor. All right, let's keep going. All right, this next question comes in as anonymous from Richmond Hill, Georgia. They write, Hello, Dr. Brogy. So many teachings are being argued about more lately, such as the rapture or once saved, always saved, etc. Now, many are saying that John MacArthur is a false teacher for saying that you can repent from the mark or from taking the mark of the beast and still be saved. Will you please address this? I am certain of your answer to this. You cannot take the mark and repent and be saved. Can you give your take on Pastor John and what he said? All right, it's a fair question. So um, this, I think, began to hit the social Christian social media three or four months ago when someone actually sent me the video file where John MacArthur, who's a fine Bible teacher, deeply committed to the Word of God, um, he was asked that question. If you'll notice, every once in a while he'll do a Q&A, kind of like what we do here at the Bible Line. Uh, we let people call us and ask questions or write them in or however they want to send them to us. And so I went back and I actually listened to the video uh, question, and it was really a hypothetical 
situation uh, that they were asking. Uh, in again, this was done in 1981, if I remember the date correctly. So this question was asked over 40 years ago, but they still had the uh, video file that was available for someone to watch as they filmed their services way back yonder as well. With that said, Dr. MacArthur is crystal clear that someone who has taken the mark of the beast has renounced Jesus as Lord and Savior. But the question was, is it possible if someone uh, said, hey, I've got the mark of the beast, but I want Jesus as my Lord and Savior, is it possible for that person to be saved? And his response was, well, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so if they did that, yes, they would be saved. But I think in fairness to John MacArthur, especially 40 years later, especially 30 years later, especially 20 years later, especially 10 years later, especially a year later, he would probably have answered it a little bit differently um, and not have, you know, created this hypothetical situation. And so, no, I think uh, the plain teaching of Scripture, and I think John MacArthur would echo this, is that someone who has taken the mark of the beach, has renounced Christ, is forever lost, and would have zero interest in calling upon Christ. But if somehow someone had a genuine interest, that was, again, a hypothetical situation that he was being posited with, then yes, they could be saved. But I think in hindsight, he would answer that question a little bit differently 40 years later. But to make a conclusion that he is a false teacher is really unfair and pretty loose with someone's words. And you don't want to flippantly speak against a man of God who has faithfully taught the Bible for 60 years and to just blow him off as some kind of a false teacher. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right. Our next question comes from Jim out of Charleston, Rhode Island. He writes, I would like a clearer understanding of what the scripture teaches concerning local church autonomy as opposed to denominational, as opposed to the denominational organization. All right. Well, it's a, it's a good question. Um, let, let me just step back for just a second and give some general principles. In fact, I have a course. We offer a course of study called the Institute of Biblical Studies. And if you go to search the scriptures, Jesus said, search the scriptures, they speak of me. There's a, an app you can download. And so if you're out cutting your grass or uh, walking down the street and you want to listen to sermons, you might consider taking the course on ecclesiology. Um, and in that course, I deal with the difference between the universal church and the local church. The universal church is made up of born-again believers across the planet. Uh, they may be under all kinds of different stripes. Maybe some are in, under stripes that aren't healthy stripes, and they should have left. But it's the true church, the universal church, what's called the Catholic church. I didn't say Roman Catholic, but the word Catholic comes from a Latin word that means universal. The universal body of Christ is made up of all born-again Christians. And if you're a member of the universal body of Christ— then you should be a member of a local church. That's what the New Testament teaches. In fact, most of the references in the New Testament are to a local assembly. And so what a believer should do is find some other like-minded, born-again, Bible-believing, Christ-exalting Christians and to commit themselves to that local assembly. What you find in the New Testament is that the local church was autonomous. There was not a structure above it with the exception of the apostles. And so the apostles did have authority over the churches as it was being established. But there are no apostles today. And you could see them even stepping back in some situations because they knew there would be a time when they would not be there. 
And so, for instance, in Acts 6, there were some widows who were being overlooked, and they said, fine, you know, seven men filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with wisdom, who can serve, and they come and they present these men to the apostles. Now, I'm sure if they had presented someone that was unqualified, they might have stepped in. But what were they doing? They were trying to get even the church in Jerusalem to act in an autonomous way, because there would become a time, like Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, there would come a time when the apostles would no longer be there. And so the Bible teaches that while churches are independent, they are also interdependent. In other words, the local assembly is governed There's by itself. There's nothing above it. It's governed by elders and served by deacons. That's the New Testament picture. And so that's, again, covered in a good course on ecclesiology. What kind of biblical government should a local assembly have? And so while the church was independent, it was also interdependent. So take some denominations. Take the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, They realized when they were here in the United States and formed that they had a young man who wanted to go overseas and serve as a missionary. And they realized, well, our church all by itself do not have the funds to do this. But, oh, there's a Baptist church uh, three miles from here, and maybe we could together uh, pool our funds and send this man as a missionary. And so they were working together, and they formed into associations, and then on a state level, and then on a national level. And the purpose was not to undermine local church autonomy, but to work together that they might accomplish more together to further the gospel. So they established seminaries. They established uh, all kinds of teaching venues where the local church would be strengthened. God's heartbeat is the local assembly. It's autonomous, but it's interdependent with other local churches uh, in that we work together, we cooperate, even this radio station. If best we can tell, the church has the gospel, we'll do some announcements for that church. Now, if they're liberal and they're marrying homosexuals or they're denying biblical inerrancy, they'll never find a spot for an announcement on this station. But assuming they're Bible-believing, though they may be of a different stripe, though they may not hold to every biblical doctrine that maybe I teach as the president of the corporation here with the Board of Elders at Community Bible Church, if they're Bible-believing, Christ-loving uh, Christians, then we'll work together to further the cause of Christ. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Well, we'll just leave it at that today, and we're so glad that you could join us for the Bible Line. This was a special edition and that we didn't take live callers today, as you picked up. But Lord willing, in our next gathering, uh, we'll take some, but we wanted to catch up on some of these questions, and we still have a whole lot. But be patient. When your question is answered, we'll email you. God bless you as you walk with Christ. 